Welcome, everybody, to Who's Your Band? I am Jeffrey Paul. Sean Morton is not with us today. He had an emergency. We hope him and wish him the best. But today, we are joined by actor, comedian, Mr. Chris Roach. How are you, Chris? Hey, what's up, Jeff? Thank you for coming on and doing this. So, like I said, you're an actor. You're a comedian. So let me ask you this right off the beginning, because um, we get right into it on this show. We, there's there's well, no... There's no preamble. We just go right for it. Um, What were you first? Were you an actor or a comedian? I was a comedian first, and I started stand-up comedy, um, believe it or not, to get over a public speaking fear. uh, Hold on a second. When did you realize you had a public speaking fear? Okay. So it was in 2003, a company I was working for sent me to a place called uh, the Dale Carnegie Training Institute for Managers. And what kind of work were you doing? I was managing a chain of adult stores. No, you weren't. I, I really was. I really was. I, I quit the family, <laughs> NYPD. Wait, wait, say it again. You broke up for a second. You quit what? I quit the family business, which was the NYPD. My two you, brothers. Wait, my- you, you were a cop? Yeah, for, for like two years. I hated it. I hated it. I always, I I always knew said, that about you. Yeah, I had, a, I had a problem writing people tickets that I couldn't afford myself, you know? <laughs> right. Were you so, in New York City? Yeah, I was in Queens, yeah. Oh, shit. And you went through the academy two, and everything. Went through the academy. My two brothers, my sister, and my father were all NYPD. And um, I just... Uh, it didn't work out for me. So I went back to the company I was working with before I called them up and they said, yeah, come on back. And, you know, they were still expanding at the time. And, um, I told them, I said, I wanted to take this, this course. And they, they gave me, it was like $3,000 and they paid for it. I'm like, all right, cool. And, uh, I remember when it was my turn to speak, I was like trembling. I was trembling. And that's when I, I realized I said, I forgotten since high school that I had this bad public speaking fear because for years, I mean, whoever public speak, you know, I, my twenties, all I did was drink in bars and hang out and you never had the public speak sober. Um, so yeah. So then I, I, I took a comedy class in 2000, the one with Peter Bales and Rich Walker. Ah, the Long Island one. Yeah. Sure. I'm from Long Island and right by my house. And I, I took the class and I never looked back. Because once I met, once I was in that environment, um, I knew like this is what I want to do. This is it was like just a, an awakening. I'm like, there was no turning back. And I think it was about two years in where I wanted to get even. I wanted to improve. I wanted to like get out of my uh, shell, so to speak. Uh, you know, just so I started taking acting classes to become a better stand up comedy comedian, and I fell in love with acting. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, well, there are a couple of things. Couple of things. First of all, what kind of kid were you in high school and college? Were you a theater kid? Were you a were you an athlete? What what kind of, what, what, what did you do? Well, the school I went to out here, Sachem High School, was a big school. I'm six six, so you figure they would come get me to uh to play basketball. But it was so big, they never had they they never had to approach me. I was a kid that just barely got by. I was always like the oh. class comedian. Uh, but still, it was just, you know, making my friends laugh. Um, 
always getting in trouble. Parents always coming up to the school and, you know, that kind of kid. No, I played hockey. I played street hockey, which wasn't a sport in school, but I love street hockey and uh, eventually started playing ice hockey a little bit too. Yeah, Long Island was pretty big for ice hockey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot more opportunity for rinks and stuff as opposed to, to being in, in the city. And did, did you go to college? No, I went to, took some classes here at the, the community college. That was it. Okay, so in, so in high school, you really didn't have any – really, there was no opportunity for you to really have to do any type of public speaking. So if you're no. managing the, a chain of adult stores, I'm assuming, you know, you know, adult – you know paraphernalia and shit why would you have to do public speaking we said adult entertainment stores because we had like 50 employees we would hold meetings it was like this the people that that bought this company out when i when i worked was working for them they took it very seriously it was very very serious and uh it was a business like any other business and it was a you know back then when i was there in the, in the early 2000s it was a big money making business so um, and plus, you know, I wanted to, I was always looking to, uh, improve my resume for whatever came next. And I didn't know stand up comedy was going to be it until they, I took that course and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And, you know, I was like, that was it. That was it. Even though I stayed on the, with the adult stores to like another six, seven years, I, um, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And, eventually sales got so bad in the adult store and the internet really started taking over and selling like the items you could go buy a vibrator at cbs now you know right right they'll call it a massager but everybody knows what it is um then that's it i, I actually almost had a fire myself like i'm sorry sales you know it was just really tough because i was close with the family that ran the place so okay so you you decided time you want to do stand-up comedy okay right. you take the acting class with, with peter bales uh, you took the co comedy class with peter bales and thought that acting would make you which, which is true i remember yeah when i when i first started i also kind of felt very awkward and um the first person i ever met in stand-up was nate bargazzi and it was oh, wow. at an, and it was at an open mic at eastville and actually him and dave smith uh took me out that after that mic we went to cabin across the street. This was um, on, on the, in the East Village on Second Avenue. Right. Nate gets me a gig that night, and he was my mentor until he moved. And wow. yeah, and one mentor. of the yeah, he was he was you know great. And one of the things like because I would watch myself, I was like, I'm too with my hands. I'm you know I'm I'm not in the moment. And he suggested, why don't you take an improv class? So have yeah. you ever have you ever done improv? I mean, I did. Uh, a couple of years at the Magnet Theater. You know what? I took uh, a course at UCB and I loved it. And it's something I really wouldn't mind going back to because I think it definitely it, it it provides you with some tools as a stand-up comedian. Um, I'm 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 mainly material based, but I'm always you know there's some guys that are like master crowd work and talking in a crowd. I'm always fascinated with that, but I like to write the jokes um, for the most part. And you know sometimes the crowd work will come. You know, if somebody says something, it'll happen organically. But I'm, I don't consider myself a crowd work comedian. But that's a that is a skill in its own. No, but you you actually remind me a lot of Nate um, because you're very comfortable. You're very laid back on on stage. You know, it always you know you you say you're 
material based, but a lot of what you you do kind of like seems to come like it seems like it's coming off the cuff. Like you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're like Chris Rock once said something. Like um, he says, like when you look at guys like like Dick Gregory and Chappelle. They don't feel like the stage is being taken away from them. And that's when I, when I, when I see you, it doesn't, you don't feel like the stage is being taken away from you. Like you're doing things at your pace in your time. And it's not like a sense of urgency. No, that's the stage. I I know eventually, uh, like sometimes I'm like, I'm a low energy comedian. I guess you could say Nate is too, although I, I never really met him, but I'm always a fan of comedians that can get big laughs without screaming. Uh, you know, just storytelling or whatnot. And when I'm up there, like there are times when, when, when I was a younger comic and I had to follow a high energy comedian, I was like, oh my God. And I would like also become high energy to try to follow that. And I'm like, this is too exhausting. <laughs> but it's not even the right thing to do because like you follow someone and say like, uh, you know, I, I, I follow guys like, uh, I don't know, I'm thinking like a high energy comedian, like, like Joey. Derek Joey Cola is a good friend of mine. Joey Cola is a good friend of mine. I remember one time I had to follow him. I was like, oh my god, he's a, he's a tornado. But it's great for the audience because, like, now mm-hmm. you come out. Like, I always kind of felt if the guy's high energy, you kind of take it down. If he's yeah. too low, if he's too low, maybe you kind of speed it up. And those were the kind of things that like Nate kind of would w- w- tell me, like, you know, that not, not stand in the back of, of the stage, stand like more in the front, like kind of like, you know, just that alone is something that is kind of like you, you, you're saying something without actually using words. You know what I mean? Right. There's a stage command. Uh, right. I think you have that. Yeah, there are nights I, I there are definitely nights I feel it more than others. But I know what you mean. Yeah, with like if you're standing there and you're actually looking into these people and talking to them as if they're like one person. Um that seems to be what, what works. And I, uh, again, when I follow a high energy comedian, I know, listen, I'm low energy. And this is what kind of also got me when I was on that, got on the show with Kevin, uh, James, I was on it for two years. I was at a comedy club by my house on a Wednesday, Colin, it was 2016. Colin Quinn was working out a new special and they asked me to come down like four other comedians and do some time in front of him. So I remember just like right before I go up, I see Kevin walk in with his entourage and I remember saying to myself, don't get nervous. You're, you're, don't speed it up. You're, you're who you are. Just be yourself. You're, I'm a low energy guy. I go up, just be myself. And I did my thing for 10 minutes, made everybody laugh and walked off stage. Um, a month later, I saw the, uh, the breakdowns come for the part and I auditioned. Um, but then I found out, I found out like a year later that I had gotten the part from that 10 minutes that just on a Wednesday night by my house, I found well, out. That well, now let's talk about that. So, what, what you know, for you know, people listening who uh, not sure what uh, Chris is referring to, Chris was uh, a regular, he had a reoccurring role on on a, on a network television show called Kevin yeah. Can Wait, and it you know starred Kevin James and a great cast. And one of the things about the, I mean, this show is the insane amount of guest stars that you had on this show guys yeah. like billy joel and noah Syndergaard and ralph macchio and i'm just t- hitting the tip yeah. of the iceberg with that right. and right. you know chris was on that show so take us through the process of getting on that show and then what that does how does that tv show change your life oh that was uh when i got that call it was just incredible incredible just getting that call itself I was like oh my god and you know, I say, well, well, who, call, who calls you and where were you? I was home 
And my manager called me and says, Rock Rubin and Kevin James are about to call you. I was like, Hamada Hamada. And she goes, Don't go anywhere. And I'm freaking out. We're Is this out of carpet. the blue? Yes. And we're getting our carpets cleaned. We're getting our carpets cleaned and it's loud. The machine, it's like one of those, <laughs> the guy backs the flatbed into the driveway. So my it's wife, always sees, that. yes, my wife sees me <laughs> freaking out. She goes, take my car. I don't think I had, I think we had one car at the time. She goes, take my car, go drive, go get yourself a soda, McDonald's, whatever, just calm down, go for a ride. And this way you can talk to him quiet in the car. So I'm, I go to leave and this big wide man is blocking the door with he's going <laughs> to, the, to the carpet in the, in the landing. And he goes, let me show you something. And he's putting this little sprinkle cup <laughs> on the floor. He goes, see what happens? He goes, you got to do that. I'm like, sir, can I get by you? Now I can't even think. I turn around. I go, Diane. I scream to my wife. She runs up the steps. She looks at me and goes, show me. Show me. He's got to go. And she goes, oh, so he moves out of the way. Like I couldn't even think to get I was gonna jump over this guy in a second. Because I'm like that my my career is on the other side of this gigantic gigantic man who's taking up the doorway. So the phone so, call, so the phone rings and what happens? So I get in the car, I went up the block, made a left, and I see a three two three, I think is uh, for LA. Okay. And I pick it up. Hey, Chris, it's Ke uh, Rock Ruben and Kevin James. And it's very blurry after that. I remember them telling me they have this thing and that show they think I would be a good fit. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I think I hung up and I started crying like a baby, you know. Like, uh, um, but that you was you the part right over the phone. Yes, Jesus, that was they. They called it a major recurring. Part. So I was in twenty four of oh yeah twenty four of the forty eight episodes, and it was just phenomenal getting to you work. played Mott. Yes, yeah, and then I Kevin asked me to start opening for him where. You know, I'm opening for him on the road. I'm meeting like some, some people coming out to see him. Like I met, I met Billy Joel a couple of times. He's, he's a good friend of his. Uh, Rob Schneider, Billy Zane, all these people I've met, like just traveling with him, they come out to see him. Um, and uh, it's just, you know, it's been so surreal. But like, you know, there are moments like uh, one episode where we're up front at Madison Square Garden. And I remember like looking up at the ceiling, like, is this really happening? Like I'm sitting between Kevin and his brother. We're filming a scene in the middle of a Billy Joel concert. And it was just so crazy. And then I get, a, I hired a publicist and I said to him, you know, I had that money at the time. You know, everything's going to run out. And I said to him, can you get me tickets to a Ranger game? Cause I'm a big Ranger fan, New York Ranger fan. He goes, yeah, yeah. So he goes, okay, you're going to see this person at this gate, blah, blah, blah. I'm in a celebrity section. I don't know if you ever seen that video. I can send it to you. I'm in a celebrity section. Don't tell me they they put you on the jumbotron. They play a clip of me and Kevin on the jumbotron, and they flash to me for like five seconds with my name underneath it. And I'm just like, oh, I'm on the shit. jumbotron. I'm on the jumbotron, and it was like one of the most craziest, surreal moments of my life. And for the whole time I was on that show, I must have saw about like twenty games for free in the celebrity section hanging out with other celebrities it was crazy and it just um it's something that i guess i don't know and then like a friend of mine john trusen once said he goes you have no idea that you're popular or recognizable do you i'm like no what do you mean he goes you're walking down the street people are looking at you and i, I just never 
you know, I was at a CVS by my house and some woman sees me there when the show is on, she screams, Oh my God, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm just picking up my prescription. Hello. I love the show. Blah, blah. She goes, can I take a picture with you? And, and, uh, what are you doing? I'm here to pick up my anxiety medication, which you're, you're giving me right now. Uh, and they go, the, I, I go to the pharmacist. She goes, what the hell was that? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> Did you love every minute of it? Every second. I was, even the scenes, like when I was on set, there are times I'm sitting in my green room and my dress, you know, my dressing room. I'm like, what am I doing? Get out there. And I was get out there. I watched, I sat back, watched Kevin work. I watched everything work. I'm like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life is be on TV and still trying to get back on it. I got an audition actually today, tomorrow, but it was just so surreal working with Kevin. Even the first scene we ever did, it was just unbelievable, unbelievable, you know? And I'm like sitting there and there's a full live audience and I'm saying to myself, you belong here. You work very hard for this. You belong here. Who's that by camera B staring at me? I'm like, oh, who's this guy staring at me? My focus is Adam Sandler. I'm like, I need this guy staring at me right now. And uh, it was just incredible, man. It was incredible. Adam Sandler's wife played my wife, and I got to meet him. It was just crazy. crazy. She was in a bunch of his uh, movies. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever feel overwhelmed by the moment like you're like like i'm not good enough uh, you know did you ever have like uh, any type of those doubts and if you did you know what what'd you do did you have to repeat a mantra or something to get over it or you just say fucking i'm doing this yeah there was there was there was there was it was like i was into that stuff the mantras and the, and the self-affirmations and but for the most part when you're there you're like all right this is it you know, it's like, it looks so, you think it's like, when you look at TV, you think it's like, oh my God. And then when you're there, I'm like, all right, I can do this. And, uh, you know, I do things like if we had a scene in the living room, I was sitting in that living room like an hour before, just hanging out, getting to familiar with every piece of furniture. Smart. Like, uh, Smart. like Joanna Beckson, I took acting classes with Joanna Beckson in the city. And one thing you do is you just pick any object, like the vase, you pick like a water vase over there or, or statue and you create a story like i remember when we bought that for kevin we went p1 imports and blah 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 and then we uh, you know somebody rear-ended us you know so now i'm looking at this statue and then everything in there is like personal it has a story to it um but i also you know like to get comfortable on set i would sit up in the audience watch i would sit out you know it was just incredible man incredible how long were you doing comedy before you you know you got I guess the club that you were doing at was Governors, right? Yeah, I was, I was doing at McGuire's in Bohemia by my house. I would say 12 years, 12 years, and some of the most incredible moments, even like Kevin and his brother Gary Valentine, there were like moments like in between. In between Gary Valentine is, is Kevin's brother? This is his older brother. A lot of people don't realize that. Oh, I, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's his older brother. And, so, and sometimes they would lean over to me, knowing that I was a new guy, and they go, hey, man, uh, why don't you try it this way? do it that way they were like give me these little hints and it was just incredible man incredible so before that what kind of what kind of shows were you doing for 12 years were you doing like bar shows were you doing open mic what what, what was what was what was life like for you um well mcguire's and governors had three clubs they had they bought mcguire's and bohemia they bought the brokerage um, was the other one the brokerage in belmore so they owned three clubs on long island so 
they had shows every Thursday, Sunday, benefit shows. This is pre-pandemic, and they had shows every Thursday and Sunday. So I learned to develop a lot on those shows, thanks to those guys. I was, uh, you know, doing those shows, and on the weekend, uh, doing firehouse shows or Knights of Columbuses. I uh, I wasn't getting into the city that much until later on, when I, and I, you know, so it was, you know, it was a lot of road, it was a lot of tri-state. And then I got on Kevin's show. Next thing I know, I'm doing like funny bones all over the country. Crazy, crazy. And now is that basically almost overnight? The show airs, you become like a regular on the show, people yeah. recognize you. And the next thing you know, you're not reaching out for avails. People are saying, hey, you know, we're interested in Chris Roach. Yes. Um, they, uh, yeah, that That's happened nuts. for a while. Even still, like, you know, the credit, you know, I'm like, I got to get a new credit. It's been a few years, but it's still done a lot for my career and it's open doors and it's, it's a strong credit to have been on TV. And, uh, but you know, I think like in 2016, you know, 17, I noticed a paradigm shift right around that where it became, you know, when I started, it was like, be funny, get on TV. And that's all you had to do. But I was like, you got to do all this social media stuff, which was started right around there. I noticed it was Twitter. Then all of a sudden Instagram and TikTok and, you know, but here's the difference with a lot of those comedians, I think. You know, and I, I see this a lot. You know, you see people who post uh, stuff on social media and it's crowd work. And it's the, the audience making the joke. It's not the material. And a lot yeah. of those people, they don't have the time. I've seen you a bunch of times. Dude, I mean, you go up there, you're doing 45, 50 minutes, and you're not, it, there's not like a lull. You're killing no. the whole time. Thank you. I, uh, I, yeah, I, I see a lot of guys post crowd work. Well, some of them, like some of the bigger, bigger names posted because they don't want to burn the new material that's coming out on the next special. But there's a lot of people that I see yet. They post it because, you know, it's the funniest thing that's happening other than what they're writing. Um, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, are you still friendly with Kevin James? Yeah, I'm actually working with him tonight at the Paramount on Long Island, 7 o'clock show. That's awesome. And you got yeah. to meet Adam Sandler and you got to meet that whole crew. Adam Sandler. I, uh, you know, Jackie was on like four or five episodes. We became good friends, his wife. And uh, I remember he was performing at Jones Beach, the, the outdoor theater here. Sure, the amphitheater. The amphitheater. And I went to go see him and I got, you know, invited backstage. And that's when I first met him. And I remember that there's a song he played from one of his songs called I Want to Grow Old With You. Yeah, and, that was from the, the Wedding Singer. Yes. Yeah. And he plays it, was, it. I'm sorry. It was one of, I think, only two songs that were in the movie that actually they did a Broadway play on it. And Stephen Lynch played the Adam Sandler role. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I saw it. Wow. What was it? Out of that song? That song was one of two songs that were in the movie, The Wedding Singer, that right. actually was part oh, of the Broadway oh, oh. Uh, score. Mm -hmm. I go backstage. Well, when they're playing the uh, song, he's playing the song. Up on all the screens, there's like pictures of him and his wife throughout the year, throughout the years. And I go backstage and I meet him. He goes, hey, man. He sees me coming. He's like, hey. And I almost like turn around like, talk to me. Who's he calling? <laughs> and I woke up. He goes, hey, man. I'll never forget. He goes, how did you like this song I played for our wife? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know? And he's like, he was really cool. And he goes, thank you for being so nice to my wife. She told me how supportive you were. 
of her because like one of the first scenes she says to me uh because i haven't acted in two years i'm so nervous and i said to her that's good you have seven kids you should be a nervous wreck put it into the character and she goes you're so right and it just we clicked right like that and right from that moment and he thanked me for like you know you know being so good to her being nice to her which she was so nice um and he goes to me can i get a picture with you i was like yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, adam actually i don't do pictures adam i'm so sorry yeah, right you're asking he's asking me for a picture crazy that was, was pretty cool um i think if i remember right you know kevin james took care of a lot of like the long island guys like i remember you know just making sure i was home on him because that show aired on a monday right and I made sure because I think Chris Monty, uh, he was on it. Uh, Joe Starr played Enzo on the pizzeria that we hung out at. Right. Carrie Carabas was on an episode. Keith Anthony, uh, John Trusen was on an episode. <laughs> so yeah, he, he pulled a lot of the, uh, the guys from I, his group. I thought that he, was always a very, very cool move. And I kind of get the feeling yeah. he, he took that from Sandler because Sandler always seemed yeah. to be a very loyal guy with the guys he went to college with and always took care of him. Yep. Yep. He definitely, that's what yeah. leaders do. Yes, absolutely. He definitely brought in as many people as he could during those two years, you know, along <laughs> with Ralph Baccio, who's also a Long Islander. But that's, uh, right, that's right. But he was already established. He, 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 didn't, he didn't need the bump, you know. You know, guys like us. You know, you you we get on like a anything that's that's national, and that's like that's like a big big uh, help uh, in our careers. It's a uh, big career, you know. It's like, you know, I got to think a few things happen. God willing, one of them hits, and uh, I'll be back at the funny boat. <laughs> <laughs> I guess as fast as it comes, that's as fast as it goes oh, away. It really does. It really does. And I've heard stories, but. You know, I witnessed, it, I witnessed it firsthand where all of a sudden it's like, all right, you're not on the show anymore. What, what, how, do we, how do we package you? I'm like, how do you, I'm like, why don't you package me as a guy who used to be on a show? Yeah, well, you know what, there's the next guy who's on the show. Yeah. And that, that, I heard that's very true with the uh, seller. You know, their oh. comics, when, when they were hot for, for, for like, you know, the, the few months, they get bookings. And as soon as you know, the heat wears off and then the next guy has some heat on them, you know, uh, okay, uh, we'll, we'll get back to you. Yeah, cellar was a tough place to get into. Um, it, I would say it was like about five years ago I really started going into the city because I wanted to become, I'm always looking to improve. And I felt like there was, you know, there's material that works in the city that doesn't work on the island and or across the country and Absolutely. vice versa. And I always respected the comedians that could work anywhere. So I started going into the city, uh, the comic trip, uh, was the first club that took me in in Gotham, the Mazzillis. And, uh, you know, it took a few lumps at first, but then I, that's the way I wanted to write. I wanted to write, you know, for many years, I thought I was more of a crowd pleaser. And then I, I, I wanted to write stuff that I really wanted to write, what I wanted to talk about. And, you know, I was doing fat jokes for a while because I was fat. <laughs> you, know? you look great now, dude. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks. But, um, then I had passed like a year ago or so. I went to the city and I passed to the cellar. I had to follow I remember I had to follow Gary Goldman, who's a, just one of my favorites. And That's great. And Esty, who's the woman that passed you, she took me outside by the hand and she's like, 
do you know where to send your avails? I was like, uh, uh, she's, and she saw me like I was getting choked up because, you know, 15, 16 years in the business trying to get into that place. And I was so emotional. I made sure I took pictures of myself, like to remember the moment. And I got a few weeks of spots, but I remember calling a friend of mine afterwards. And I said, I just passed the seller and telling my wife, I just passed the seller. She's like, all right, I'm watching a movie. Like she couldn't understand what that meant to a comedian. I'm like, now, so you don't stand. I'm, I'm going to be getting on stage three times a night. I'm going to be really developing fast now. And um, I remember calling my friend Mick Thomas and telling him, he goes, oh, man, she's passing everybody now. And I was like, mm. it was just like. Mm. Yeah, but but it's getting booked. You can get passed, do one or two spots. And then, you know, they, again, they, they don't take you, you. They lose your number. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, I got to say, you, you don't come across as a very emotional guy. But like now, you know, we find out two things that really kind of like touched you in a very profound way. Yeah. It is, uh, you know, on the outside, maybe not because I'm a low, very mellow guy. And, but on the inside, it's a circus. <laughs> I had one more question about um, sure. Kevin can wait before we move on. Sure. Um, actually, two more. Uh, why did they replace Aaron Hayes with uh, Leah Remini? Um, they said that uh, they, ran out of, uh, they ran out of ideas uh, for her character. Um I felt really bad because she was uh, a great, she's a great actress. Exactly. And we became good friends. We, we share the same birthday. So that was, that was tough. It was tough when you get to become like family with somebody and the next season they're gone. That was really tough, but you know, she's, uh, she's out there doing very well for herself. I, I, I'm always seeing her on stuff. Mm. And the other thing was, um, I don't think a lot of people knew this either. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying the guy's name right, but uh, Michael uh, Del Juice. Del Judas, Long Island guy. He did right, the theme song. He wrote the theme song. And if those people, you're not familiar with uh, Michael Del Juice, all right? Um, he is in Billy Joel's band. And if you get a chance to see Billy before they start off with a um, um, scene from Italian restaurant, he sings Ness and Dorma, uh, which is a beautiful, beautiful operatic song and he just nails it i mean it. I mean, he yeah. has his own band i think it's called big shot if i'm not mistaken yep yep okay that's how, and uh, it is really how, amazing it's a it's a billy joel tribute band and he is like one of the nicest guys you can meet i remember he came into my dressing room i was talking to him and i had a guitar in there and i was messing around with it and i was joking around tell him like you know when i was single i used to learn the first I learned the first 15 seconds of the song More Than Words by Extreme that was popular at the time. Yeah, yeah, the acoustic song. Yeah, and I used to play it like to impress a girl that was over. And then I put the guitar down. Like, no, finish the song. I'm like, ah, maybe late, maybe late. Uh, <laughs> he picks it up and plays and sings the entire song. <laughs> you know what me and my friend used to do? <laughs> yeah, not, not take the guitar, but we used to take like uh, not a song by Extreme, but like Weezer, an obscure song. Oh, and, yes. and tell girls that we were poets, and we oh. and there was a song called Butterfly, which I thought was a very tender song. But I would pretend like you know, like you know, this is this is one of my heartfelt poems, and like you know, yeah. <laughs> I did that at open mic one time. There was that, uh, it was an open mic that these it was really cool. It was such a great open mic. There were there were poetry uh, artists and us, 
So they would alternate comedian and poets, and it just really clicked. And the poets were so cool. They were so cool with us. They, they, it was originally a poetry open mic, and they let us go up there and do five minutes. You know, it was so cool. And one day I went up there, and I read, uh, what do you call it? It was an old uh, Eddie Murphy skit where he's like in a prison. They were looking for poets. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I remember those. Dark and lonely on a summer night. Kill my landlord. Kill, Kill my, my landlord. <laughs> And you I did, did that, that in public? I did that at an open mic, uh, a poetry <laughs> comedy open mic, like I was a poet. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, I get off stage, the poets are hysterical laughing and they're, they're high-fiving. <laughs> Only like one or two comedians knew what I did. You know, it was, you know, from that skit. See, back in the day, if you would have taped that and you throw that like on, on, on a reel or on TikTok or some type of social media, that would have gotten a lot of hits. That's really funny. I should Holy probably shit. do it. This is what I don't get about you. Okay, you grew up on Long Island. How the fuck are you a Ranger fan? I'm, I, I, I thought, yeah, I thought you would be a this huge Islander fan. I'm a. I live in Islander country, which means I'm in Suffolk County. Um, and my dad, who was NYPD, would bring us home sticks from the Rangers from the garden. And I was like, I I remember watching being at my aunt's house, role playing, and it's like screaming. My uncle and my father are screaming at the TV, and I run in. It's a fight. This guy, Nick Fatio. Staten fighting. Islander. Staten Island That's, boy. Yeah. And then I go back out and play, and I hear more screaming. I run back in. Same guy. <laughs> I'm like, who is this guy? So I remember starting watching the Rangers only because I wanted to see who Nick Fatio was going to go after. Um, and then I fell in love with the Rangers. I, I loved hockey. And I just became a really diehard Ranger fan after that. What was so cool, though, is um, I got to meet, I'm so blessed. I, I got to meet Clark Gillies. Uh, I want, I had a hockey podcast for a little while. I wanted him on it so bad. I, we couldn't get, it just didn't work out. But we kept like, dates kept getting mixed up. But I got to have like other plays like Dave, Dave the Hammer Schultz was on it. Ron Dugay from the Rangers and I became really good friends and uh, still good friends. And uh, I got to meet, um, a couple of years ago, like 2019, I think it was, I was a ranger out of the game in the city, and I'm going through the, you know, the the, the VIP entrance, you know, putting on, going through the metal detector, and I'm picking up my keys, you know, like the airport at the end when you pick yourself up out of the tray. I'm picking my stuff up out of the tray, and I turn around, it's Mike Bossy, is oh, there? Wow, yeah. I said the same thing to him that I said to Clark Gillies. I said, "You made my childhood miserable." <laughs> <laughs> That was like, you think about that was one of the all time best lines in hockey when you had Trottier, Gillies, and Bossy. You couldn't have gotten more of a balanced line. I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think maybe someone, one of the old Canadians or maybe an Edmonton Oilers from the uh, late 80s, 90s, you know, the Gretzky years, you know, may may have rivaled it, but I mean, it was a a perfect line. I got a chance to meet Dave the Hammer Schultz. I, he, he was, if, if you took all sports Funny. and you combined them, okay, I, I don't know if it could equal the hatred I have for the Philadelphia Flyers. If, oh. yeah, if, yeah. If, yeah if, if hate was China, it would be it, okay? That's how much I hate the Flyers. I mean, I and I hate the New England Patriots. They are right up right. there but still does not combine with my hatred. So I used to play hockey. I got invited to this thing out in um, Long Island. 
And it's like these 50 goal scorers. I need everybody. And then there were a couple of other guys there. I remember Bill, Bill Barber was there. Another yeah. guy I hated because he was, I think he wound, wound up winning co-rookie of the year with Steve Vickers, who was a was guy. A I, huh? Was Bill Barber a flyer? Or no, Bill Barber was a flyer. Yeah. And and him and Vickers came up at the same time. Vickers was a Ranger who I yes. met and I loved him. I was a big, I was a big Ranger fan. I'm an Islander Ranger fan. I'm a big New York sports fan. Um, but Bill, uh, Dave Schultz was at this event and it was one of these things where I was like, it was food and, and, and you took pictures with everybody. It was a real, like great time. And everybody was in pictures and Schultz came over. He's like, Hey, you know, you know, posing a picture. I was like, nah. And the guy couldn't have been nicer, but I just, hate, I just hated him for years. Yeah. You want to hear something funny? 2018, my agent calls me, Hey. We got a comedy show. It's for the Cloud Drew Foundation. Uh, you want to do a show for the Philadelphia Flyers? I was like, what? Now, like you, I hated them in the 80s. Dave Brown. Crush Dave, Brown. Dave Brown's crush check to Thomas Santrum's head. I hated him and a few of the other Flyers. I ended up I hated Gary Dornhofer. Remember him? Yeah, had, you know what I had on my podcast? It was a phenomenal player. I had like three or four 50-goal seasons, and then he got a vicious cross check to the head, and Brian Prop. I was gonna Ooh. say, yeah, he 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 uh, he's on social media a lot. Sure, what a great sweet guy. He had a stroke a few years ago, and he, and he talks about it. And, um, but what a great guy, and he gave me he hooked me up with a couple other guys. Um, but so next thing I know, I'm down in uh, Philadelphia. You know, all their arenas are right in one area, right? Like, yeah, uh, hockey, basketball, and football. So there's like almost like a a Dave and Buster's kind of place. It's tremendous. That's right. It was, it was the old spectrum. So mm -hmm. I'm doing comedy. Next thing you know, I'm standing up on stage. The Claude Drew Foundation, which I found out it's not Claude, it's Cloud. Got to meet him. I got to meet Simmons, all these all these guys that I, you know. But I, anyway, I'm up on stage. And I'm, my first thought is like, where are these scumbags? Where's Dave Brown? <laughs> right? And I'm looking down. They're all wearing like orange polos and there's, you know, family and friends and, and whoever. It's a mixed crowd of players. And But as I'm up there, I'm looking down. I'm like, they're kids. They're kids. You know, the players are so young now. Here I am. I'm, I'm 50. And they're like in their early 20s. And like I'm like, where's Dave Brown, that son of a bitch? And I really wanted to beat Ron Hextall because I, I liked Ron Hextall because – my brother's a goalie, and he reminded me of Ron Hextall. They both had tempers, and I was Hextall hoping would be, come across. He'd fight. He would Never? fight. He, he was him and Billy Smith were vicious. Loved, loved Billy Smith. Vicious goaltenders. And Billy Smith could, would take that big stick and just whack his ankles with it. Remember, Billy Smith. I think Hextall threw his blocker at referees. <laughs> <laughs> Hextall was the first goalie to take the puck and shoot it down at the other net. Billy Smith. That's right. He was. Billy Smith got hit with the puck. And one of the other plays accidentally shot it down to his defenseman, and it went down into the, their own empty net. So Billy Smith got credited with the goal, which was history. But Ron Hextall was the first guy to take the puck with a stick and shoot it down the ice into the net. Um, yeah, you, you know that's a great point that you make. You kind of revel like you see these guys now come out of the uh, the nets and they're and they're oh. able to like, you know able to kind of like flip the puck up ice and you know you see goalies get a lot of assists. But I think Hextall was one of the first. Him and Smith were probably the two of the first ones to do it. But you know who's going to do it? He missed the net by like a foot about last month. Shesterkin from the Rangers is going to, he's going to guarantee you he's going to score a goal. And everybody knows it's coming. 
because when he takes it, he shot one right down and he just missed the net. And if that happens at the garden, they're going to go berserk. Yeah. I hope it does happen at the garden. Yeah. So were you, I'm, I'm not sure if this, this is right. Um, were you ever on a soap opera? Yes. My, one of my, my first acting gig, I was on One Life to Live as a mental patient. <laughs> as, as a mental patient who... Uh, Did you have to the, audition for that? They, they looked at me, they go, you're hired. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I had, I had an audition, and I remember sitting in the dressing room, and I was, I was in character in the waiting room. like I'm like getting ready to go in, like rocking back and forth. And I got the part, and the woman says to me, she goes, okay, but because I'm like spitting and like screaming. And what, I had, had these lines, uh, you know, I had some dialogue and she goes, are oh, you, you are great. But can I say one thing? I'm like, what? She goes, it's daytime TV. So you got to dial it down a little bit, <laughs> dial it down a little bit, you know? So I'm like, all right. So I went there and, you know, it was a phenomenal learning experience. Th those actors, I mean, they got to learn lines in like a day. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you look at soap act. I, I learned by watching them their scripts whenever you see any scenes their scripts are on the floor at their feet they look at them they put them at their feet one two takes go one two take go there's no like can i try it again no we got it mm, moving on and that like when this i remember when it aired there are some scenes i looked at i was like Ugh, yeah like i didn't like them at all and some scenes like oh i'll put this one on my reel but it was just phenomenal experience do you do you have a hard time uh memorizing lines uh no, not really. It's just, uh, I mean, I have a, a system. Um, like, I just did, I did an independent film yesterday, and I felt like I didn't spend enough time on the lines that, as, as I could have. And But the thing, thing about you feel me, like that uh, a lot? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but did you feel like that a lot when you do when you do stuff? You know what? Because between comedy, a lot, sometimes they'll give me an audition on a Friday, and it's due on Monday, and it's like four pages of dialogue, and I got gigs Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And it's like, I'm trying to squeeze the lines in and I, I do, you know, as much memorization as I can. Um, but the good thing when you're filming something is they'll film it in pieces. Like, all right, they're going to do, the scene may have like, you may have 20 lines, but we only need the three, these four lines for this one part of the scene, you know? And then while they're readjusting lighting and angles and stuff, you could, like, what do we do next? All right, and you look at that and get off book on, you know, on that yeah. one. I find that to be the hardest thing about acting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I also kind of feel that um, that when you're going across playing opposed to somebody who's really good, makes it much easier on for you. Oh, I worked with two actresses yesterday, and they were so great that it reminded me of why I love acting because I've done some scenes in the past where it's either just me and doing a scene myself, or with somebody that you could tell you know that just like it's fairly new at it but these actors actresses were like they were seasoned and i felt it and i just it was great it was just so great yeah people think that acting is really easy and you know i guess the good ones make it look easy just like anything else but yeah. in, it, you don't realize the distractions and again memorizing the lines and saying that like like you can have two three people in there with the same script and there'll be one person who just does it in such a special way and that, yeah. that, that, and that's the talent there was um a couple of times yesterday i'm like can i do that one over because my new york came out i'm supposed to be from oklahoma so i gotta watch my r's you know we we tend to drop our r's like mother father it's not talk it's talk it's not water it's water you know little things like that um 
that New York accent. Like my first audition was for, I go into the city as a Ford Explorer. And I'm like, the new Ford Explorer. They're like, cut. I'm like, what? <laughs> cut. Chris, it's not Ford Explorer. It's Ford, not Ford. It's Explorer, not Explorer. I'm like, that's what I said. <laughs> I had I said. The, <laughs> speaking of, I had a, I think it was the Ford 150. I did a commercial for that. Uh, it was, I had like the lead part of it, but no, no lines. It was a voiceover. It was like me coming home from work in my Ford Explorer, driving up to the house, me working in my Ford Explorer, you know, me working, you know, cleaning up the shop, then getting into the Ford Explorer. No yeah. lines. Perfect. Perfect nice. for me. Um, what else do you hope to do, man? So you're acting, you're, you're, you're doing, uh, you know, you're living your dream, doing co comedy, you're, you're playing all over the place. What else are you hoping? Well, if you look over my shoulder here, I don't know if you can see it. I built a little voiceover booth in the closet. So um, I'm working on that. I have a cartoon that we just pitched to uh, Paramount Plus, which they passed on because it's more of a sci-fi. I feel like this this cartoon is belongs on a sci-fi network or Adult Swim or something like that. But just a pitching, just pitching a project like you, you expect it to be a certain way. And I'm Zooming with these two women who are, like at their kitchen tables, like the cat goes running by, the kid runs up and hands the mother something, you know, <laughs> it was just so low key. It was so low key. They were so cool. But, you know, I learned a few things too, you know, from the last pitch that you, you can take something away, even though you don't get the part, whatever, you can learn something from the experience from that audition. Absolutely. Like I used to, you know, I'm going tomorrow, I'm going into Beth Melsky, which is a popular place to audition. I haven't sure. been, I haven't done an audition in person since before the pandemic so this is the first one going back now we're all going there to audition for this commercial but we're going to be zooming live with the uh the client and i'm thinking to myself why can't we do this from home you know why can't we zoom I, from home? You know, i have mixed thoughts on that i i yeah. like the i like the in-person part because i think you get direction um yeah. you know i think it's easier to kind of concentrate because there's no other distractions um, but there, there is something to be said about the convenience of doing things over yeah. Zoom. There was one, one of my favorite auditions. Will Smith has this movie out, uh, which probably would have got more press if he didn't hit Chris Rock in the face. Uh, he's playing like a runaway slave. And I had this audition of a, a, a slave hunter. And I was able to really get into the character at home, study, rehearse, get off book. And... I didn't get the part. The part ended up going to somebody recognizable, but I felt like I was so, I felt like the audition went very well that the head of my agency, Buckwald, actually wrote me and said, man, that was a really good job. I said, thank you. And, you know, sometimes that's all you take away from it. I felt good. I got praise from my agency and that's all you could do. You know, they always say audition and just try to forget about it. It's hard to, it's hard to forget about it, but. It is because, you know, some, some of these roles could be, you know, game changes, or like you said, you get that other credit. But the other thing is, you, you know, what I've noticed is that you come across the same casting uh, agents and they remember you. And like, listen, you may have been too big for a part. You may have been too small for a part. You may have been too skinny for a part. You may have been too fat for a part. You're not quite right. You know, you're not, you know there's a million factors. It's not just the talent that goes in, into casting. 
Right. So, you know, but they know that you're good and they know that you can deliver the goods. So if you, you may not expect it now. You'll you listen, we could be done with this podcast and you could be driving your car and you know, Tuesday afternoon, someone will call you and say, Chris, we something just came across our desk, you'd be perfect for it. That could be it. I mean, I just auditioned for a, a CBS pilot uh two weeks ago. Um, you know, I learned that, that when you audition for a sitcom pilot, there's also offers out to actors that are recognizable. So that's right. Something, you know, I get excited when I see an audition for a pilot. I give it my best. But I'm also like, all right, they're going to offer it to this guy, this guy, this guy. And I'm hoping to become that guy. Where they're like, all right, we're going to audition, but let's give Chris Roach an offer see if he wants it. That's what I'm... That's all you can control, Chris. Yeah. yeah. You know, and if you didn't love it, you wouldn't do it. A um, couple of things, because, you know, we got to wrap this up soon, and we didn't even talk music yet. But uh, right. there was just one other thing I wanted to run by you. Um, I don't know if you saw, uh, I think just came out the other day that the Friars Club closed down. So now you got the Carolines, the Friars Club. You know, is that a, yeah, is that a reflection on comedy or is that a reflection on New York City? That's a really good question. I can see the Friars Club. I I feel blessed. I'm sure you've been there. I've been there. I did a small show for a small crowd. But that club the members were, you know, every time I went there, there was some very, it was very old members. Uh, and I just, it's just, hopefully that place should be made into a museum. How, I, I hope they, I don't know, are they doing anything with it? Because even like Dangerfield's clothes, I'm like, that should be like, uh, what do they call that? Like when they make it like a, a landmark or something where they, they protect it like part of history. Oh, they make it part of like the National uh, Historic Society. Yeah. Yes, like Dangerfields was had been open for what forty years. Uh, the Friars Club, all the guys that hung out there, Sinatra. Well, somebody they had a marker. It was his table. Was it Sinatra or Dean Martin? He had a table there. Um, just the history in that building is surreal, um, and it's just a shame that it, it's closing. And maybe because it's just like, look at the comedians. Uh, the, the, the comedians, I guess, who are like younger. They're not hanging out at the Friars Club. It was a place where comedians and actors hung out. They're not hanging out there anymore. You can't, you know, it's just, it's a different time. It, it is. Um, I guess back in the, the days, you know, the uh, the Friars Club held something like, it was, it was a place to network, you know? It right. Was a, you know, place to kind of rub elbows with people who could, who could, you know, who, who you could get in front of. Um, but I think, I think sometimes I look at it as, a, you know, a, is it a bigger picture? Because Caroline's closed, you know, uh, at the at the start of the year. Dangerfield never reopened from the pandemic. And the thing is, I drive past there at least once a week because I'll go up uh, to the comic strip, and the place is still intact. It, but except the the marquee is down, and there's a big for sale sign. But you can still right. see some of the old pictures on the outside still. It's just sad. You wonder if it's uh, was was Caroline's a question of rent. The yes, it was a question of rent. They had really, like, uh, really, I think I had gone from 20 or 30 grand to something like up to close to 100. I always, yeah. Anytime I see a comedy club, I try to follow all the comedy clubs. And a lot of them I'm not, I'm not past that or I'm not in, but I'll still like it because anytime a comedy club closes, it's no good for any of us. Agreed. So 
even if the comedy club's not using you, support them because it's good for comedy. And uh, uh, just seeing Caroline's clothes, which I performed there only a handful of times, but it's really sad that it closed. It's really sad. It's just a, especially a big name and in that location too. Maybe it's going to be the location. Nobody's going to that area anymore. It's all downtown. I, I don't know. I don't know. So, that's why I'm like, is it comedy or is it New York mm. City? Yeah, it could be it could be a New York City thing. It could be a rent thing. Uh, I don't know, but you know, I'm always happy when I see these new clubs. Uh, like one of them just opened up in Connecticut. I'm always happy to see these new clubs open up. And you know, you try to get in, try to get in them, but it's still it's good to see new clubs popping up, especially when you see uh, some long time ones shutting down. It 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 really is heartbreaking, man. It really it, is. Um, Okay, so the name of our show here is called Who's Your Band? And right. before we let you go, you know, we got to talk about your band. And if you look right over my shoulder, you see right there? Yes. Okay. I don't know, like, yes. That's a, okay, that's a, that's a drum head signed by all four original Ramones. Nice. And you're a big Ramones guy. How did yeah. that come about? Uh, a friend of mine hooked me up, got me into them, and uh, it was in the, the 90s, I think. It was 90, like 94. You're out of wait. high school? Oh, wait, earlier than that. I'm so sorry. It, it was in the 80s. It was like 87, 88. Right, so you're they, in high school. Yeah, they I, I, yeah, and they had already been they had already been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was I Wanna Be Sedated, but then I got Ramon's, Ramon's Mania, which had like their hits. Right, right. Oh, God, yeah. You could just play that thing. You, I, There's no reason to skip songs because every song was like, I love this song. I love this song. I love that song. And then I started following them around. I watched them play uh, several places, uh, Roseland, uh, uh, out east on Long Island. I watched them play about seven, eight times. I became almost like a groupie. And uh, then I went to McGuire's by my house one night, where, of course, where I met Kevin. And somebody goes, uh, you like the Ramones? I'm like, my favorite band. He goes, oh, that's CJ right there. <laughs> you know, CJ was the guy who took over for Dee Dee, and Dee Dee was my favorite Ramone. I love the songs that Dee Dee sang, like Warthog and stuff like that. Right. Uh, so I met CJ, and he was a great dude. And we became friends. He was on my podcast. Oh, wow. Uh, we're That's always supporting one. each other. Like, you know, he recently reposted one of my posts and said, hey, all my Long Island friends, go see my friend Chris Roach. So we became friends. And he's living in San Francisco now. And he's still, like, you know, like the Ramones they were, I mean, they were big in the States, but overseas, they were like rock gods over there. You know, it was, it's just in South America, like CJ says, when he goes to South America, forget it. He like sells out clubs. Listen, they, they were so influential on like, you know, on dress on, on the, in, in the music. They were, they were three, they were three chords and, yep. and, and all speed, you know, and if you didn't like a song, just wait three minutes and it'll be over. Yeah. And what they did was, which, you know, when I first started seeing them live, I'm like, I wasn't crazy about it, but then I understood they play all their songs at the same tempo. They would, they would play all their songs at the same tempo and you'd be moshing and dancing. You're like, what song is this? I don't Okay. I know what song it is. It took you a few seconds to figure out what song it was. And uh, I met a guy last night. He goes, hey, we were talking about the Ramones last night at a gig. And he goes, he goes, he goes, the craziest show I ever saw. He goes, I was at the Stony Brook College gymnasium. And I'm like, oh my God, I was at that show. 
and it was the largest mosh pit I ever saw in my life. I saw people leaving with bloody nose. One of our friends had to go to the hospital. It was just insane, uh, the mosh pits. But one thing I did like about my, my, the mosh pits, and I was tall, so I... Yeah, who's going to mess with you in a mosh pit? Believe it or not, though, being that I'm tall, I felt like I didn't do good because I, I get hit low. I'm like, oh! <laughs> so I would be, you know, I was a big guy. I would stand on the outskirts, and if I see somebody fall, I'd run in, pick them up, and run out, you know, just so they wouldn't get trampled. <laughs> I, I, there was almost like a, a a brotherhood in the pits, so to speak. Right, you know? right. It, people looked out for each other, even though you could get an occasional el- accidental elbow in the nose and stuff like that. But well, if, I, you're not getting one in the nose. No, I was, you know, in the guts yeah. or the knees. Yeah, exactly. You'll, you'll get some shots in the ribs. You know, yeah. the, the Ramones, though, they did an album, I think, I'm pretty sure, with Phil Spector. And, right. it re- and it really kind of opened up their sound a little bit. And it, it, one of the songs that stood out to me was Baby, I Love You. Oh, we played that. That was uh, my wife and I. It was our wedding song. Great song. Great, yeah. great song. Like, you have to listen to it a couple of times to, to figure out that it's the Ramones. Because because it had yes. that, that, that had so much had so much sound. Right. It had yeah. the strings. Strings. It was be- it's a beautiful, beautiful version of the song. You're like, wow. And again, you're like, this is the Ramones, but it's so beautiful. We had it as our wedding soon. Right. Now, now you take a song like that, and then you take a song like Teenage Lobotomy, and you, it's like, is this the same band? <laughs> That's a great right? song. <laughs> but I, I mean, love. I, I, I love, I saw them, uh, oh God, years ago has to be, because it was in, the, I guess, 90 something, because yeah, they, the they, they had played on Lollapalooza. Right. And, well, yeah, but, but but they were just a, the, a middle band. They were I know. A, I remember seeing them on the T-shirt. Yeah, it's like and... they who opened that show. Who it, it played in the afternoon, and I think gates opened like eleven, twelve, and by one o'clock, I think the show starts. First yeah. band up, Green Day. Yes, and you know bands like I was going to say bands like Green Day. Uh, you know, you, you listen to them, you're like, oh, they're influenced by the Ramones. Oh my and, God, uh, them rancid! You know, all those bands are all of you know influenced by the Ramones. And I heard that um, that the Sex Pistols went into a studio with a copy of the Ramones' "Rocket to Russia" album, and they said, "We want this sound." And supposedly they didn't like each other. I think so, that was yeah. It comes sometimes thing with the uh, not the Ramones with the uh, Sex Pistols. A lot of that was done just because it was like who they're supposed to be. Yeah, the angst, the angst characters. Yeah, yeah, and like they didn't like anybody. Everybody was a wanker, you know. Fuck, fuck yeah, yeah. How wild is it when you perform at Gotham? You're like at Gotham Comedy Club on West Twenty Third, between Eighth and Ninth, right next door to Gotham is the Chelsea Hotel, Hotel. with Sid Vicious. Uh, tell me, Hotel. tell me, you don't walk past it, like, and you you have to stop. You have to. You have to look up like the the. The history and he was like you know when you look at the, hear about Sid Vicious he was just a kid who was in a band for a little while you know was a decent bass player but it was just just an incredible story that um and we're performing right next to it and they really haven't changed the hotel much no no I, I you know it's it's that and when you were at Caroline's you know you would pass the Brill Building. And the Brill Building is this very famous, like in the 1950s, 60s, it was where all the songwriters would go. Cal King, if you watch the, or or saw Jersey Boys, that's where they got their start, where 
where uh, Bob Gordio and Frankie Valley would knock on on songwriters' doors and try to get a break. I love it. You know what I also love when I'm opening for Kevin on the road. We do these theaters, sometimes old theaters, and some of them, like we were upstate somewhere, I can't remember where. And on the wall, they had a list of people that had been on that stage, like Thomas Edison. <laughs> like, Thomas That's history. BB King. I'm like that. I love that. I'm like I'm going to be standing on the stage where Thomas Edison probably showed the the projector or something for the first time. <laughs> you know, and uh, and BB King played, and you know, Teddy Roosevelt gave a speech. Whatever. It's crazy. I'm. It's funny that you bring up Thomas Edison because I was just reading something about him and. Thomas Edison was, are you familiar with uh, Stoicism, Stoic uh, philosophy? It pops up on my Instagram because I love philosophy. And yeah. I don't even know what Stoicism means. Is it, is it after a person? Stoicism is, is, is a way of thinking. And probably the most famous of the Stoics was a guy by the name of Marcus Aurelius. He was the last of the yeah. five uh, good emperors in, right. uh, in, in Rome. I um, love the it, it's it's great stuff, and Edison subscribed to this way of thinking. I think the, a lot of the greats do, um, where it's 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 a non defeatist attitude. And I think it's something that, like, when you're in this in this field, I think it's something that really uh, is very calming and 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 helps you focus a little bit. So Edison had a factory, and this factory, you know, gets this massive fire, burns to the ground. I mean, it is a huge fire, and his son sees it, and he's freaking out. And Edison tells him, you know, go get your mother, go, go, go get the uh, the neighbors, because they'll never see a fire like this again. And, you know, he wasn't worried about like, you know, all his work in there is going to uh, right. is destroyed. He says, this will be the next chapter of my life and I'll rebuild it. And he does. And he rebuilds it and it becomes even bigger and even better. And I think that's what the greats do, as opposed to saying this is going to defeat me. So like again you know you audition for a part and it's going to be great and you don't get it well this is only going to make me better and stronger for the next time they they know how important failure is that's the thing exactly failure is and i don't know it was edison or alexander graham bell that, that said was edison that says like he he didn't fail like a, a thousand times before making the light bulb he just realized a thousand ways how not to, not make, a light to make a light bulb yeah that was that was edison a different number, but yeah, it was to that point. It was really, it's really profound. Exactly, it's it's interesting stuff, man. Um, hey, where can people find you, and what do you got coming up? I uh, got a new website just launched, or should be getting launched this week. It's chrisroachlive.com on Instagram at Roach Comic, and uh, I'm always posting my dates and um, you know, trying to get better at that social media stuff. I like posting funny videos. I post, I mainly make videos to make my dad laugh. And those are the ones that seem to do good. <laughs> Guys, go see Chris Roach, man. He is really, really one of the good ones. You know, you will you will thank me afterwards. Chris, thank you so much for joining us, man. This was really good. I mean, this, this time just flew by. Yeah, thanks so much, Jeff. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, hopefully I'll see you soon on the road. And yeah. um uh, you know, I wish you the best of luck and everything. And again, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, dude. Thank you. Uh, thank, you brother. thank you so much. All right, guys, we'll be back next week with another great episode. Uh, continue to subscribe and we'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. So long. See you guys.